Welcome to the 60th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg, and our co-host, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, is off at a UN conference. Luckily, Natasha Benjamin of Blue Frontier can join us as we talk with Farah Obadula, founder of Women for Oceans. A graduate of Imperial College in London with a master's in biology, Farah spent over a decade as senior oceans campaigner for Greenpeace, traveling across the world ocean, working on a range of issues, including illegal pirate fishing and human slavery at sea. Later, she founded Women for Oceans and is today a leading figure in the global fight for a moratorium on deep sea mining. So lots to cover. Farah, maybe we can start with how you first connected with the sea in your first beach cleanup at age five. Thank you, David. Um, yeah, that's uh, that takes me back. So my first connection with the ocean, my parents would probably say it was when my mom was swimming uh, off the Florida Keys when she was pregnant with me. So that probably triggered something. <laughs> uh, but I but yeah, I, I grew up by the sea, mostly in the Netherlands um, and but also in West Africa in Gabon. And I just I always remember being in awe of uh, the sea, the ocean, the wild waves, the, the moody weather uh, and clouds above it. And, and so I honestly can't remember a time that I wasn't fascinated by the ocean. Um, I grew up in the 80s where plastic wasn't necessarily a thing, but even there, even in the 80s, you know, I'd see people littering, throwing their cans on the beach or in the ocean. And it would, it would, um, it would enrage me because, you know, this is, this is, that's not a behavior that we would ever find acceptable at home. And I just felt that, that uh, just seeing that kind of assault on nature, uh, it didn't sit right. And so I knew at a very young age that I, I wanted to do something about it. And uh, of course, uh, from plastic pollution came a whole bunch of other issues I learned quickly when I lived in Gabon um, about deforestation, the rainforest. Uh, being deforested, deforested at an at a unprecedented rate. And even as a kid, I could see that happening. So I, I can't pinpoint a single moment, but it was a gradual sort of uh, accumulation of observations that, that led me to, to uh, my, my uh, passion or my commitment to the ocean and, and to protect it. And that's what I've been doing for the past um, 20 years or so. And so you sort of grew up a traveler for the world. I assume that was your parents and not you doing that as a child. Yes, as a child, that's the case. And uh, and also because I'm I'm um, biracial, bicultural, I spent a lot of time between the Netherlands and Pakistan, which also has beautiful beaches. Um, so yeah, I, I and and I was privileged enough to travel with my parents, but also my jobs have taken me to many places. Um, uh, you mentioned Greenpeace, of course, you know, sailing on the Greenpeace ships uh, to some of the most remote places on Earth, uh, but also seeing some of the most egregious practices happening uh, to our oceans. Um, you know, seeing countless numbers of sharks being uh, culled and killed. Uh, yeah cetaceans, whales and dolphins, but also just the sheer number of fish that is being taken from our ocean uh, every day of every year. And at one point, I mean, it doesn't take, you know, a scientist to wonder when the ocean is going to empty. Um, so those, those were just all sort of big signs for me that I've got to keep doing what I'm doing. And, um, you know, and it doesn't matter what the issue is from, you know, slavery at sea to deep sea mining. Um, it all matters, you know, we have to make sure that we safeguard the ocean because without the ocean, we honestly, we wouldn't be here. So, yeah. When you went to get your biology degree and master's at Imperial College, were you thinking, this is a great career path to be a Greenpeace campaigner? <laughs> no, actually, no. I mean, I, I, to be honest, I didn't know 
So my interest in the ocean meant that uh, people around me, my parents included, they just assumed, well, therefore you have to study marine biology and become a scientist and work in a lab or work on a boat. And so that was kind of the, 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 uh, the path that I thought or I assumed I had to take. So yeah, I did my first degree in biology and my second degree in environmental technology, but I didn't, I knew sort of after my master's that I, I didn't necessarily want to be an academic as much as I respect and admire um, all my, my uh, you know, science colleagues. And of course we need science to inform us. I myself didn't see, um, you know, myself doing research. What I saw myself doing was yes, spending time on and in the ocean, but more as a, yeah, as an, as an advocate, as someone that comes up for the ocean and that uses that scientific information um, and communicates that to the world and, and affects change, whether that's change in, in my community or, or change at, uh, at the policy level. So, so yeah, I, I, I did those degrees, but I also knew in the back of my mind that I wasn't going to be a research scientist and that somehow I was going to you know, lend my voice to, to the movement of uh, defending the ocean. So how did you connect with Greenpeace and, and end up going to see well, it's a funny story that because I was a few years ago, I found an essay that I had written when I was about 13 years old um, as I was clearing out my stuff. And that essay was about a dream I had uh, where these dolphins were washed up on the beach in New Zealand. And so what I did was I contacted Greenpeace and we went out to sea to take on the tuna uh, industry, the tuna fishers, because they were responsible for these uh, dolphin deaths. Now, this essay I literally dug it up maybe five or six years ago and I've forgotten all about it, but I have lived that dream and that essay twice. I've been out to the Pacific Ocean to take on tuna trawlers as part of Greenpeace, can, uh, Greenpeace campaigns. So I would say my connection with Greenpeace started quite early, uh, unknowingly. Um, but then I, yeah, I, I suppose, so I worked as an environmental consultant when I graduated, which, you know, was the first kind of job uh, that I could have, and, and it was a good job. I, I traveled a lot. I worked for the, the private sector doing uh, due diligence, environmental due diligence. Um, it was a very corporate career, and I was climbing quite rapidly. But after four years, I thought to myself, but this is, again, not what I imagined myself doing. It wasn't my passion. And I knew that if I didn't get out then, I would be stuck um, in this, albeit, you know, great career. Um, it wouldn't be doing what I was passionate about. So I, I then spent some time looking at what, you know, where could I fit uh, in, in, and obviously the nonprofit world, that's where the stuff on oceans was happening. So, so I was looking around for jobs in the nonprofit sector. I ended up working for Seas at Risk, which is a, um, an, a, a European federation of NGOs working to protect the ocean. And I also worked for the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition at the time. So I had two jobs um, and all of that led me to, uh, you know, to be introduced and immersed in the work of Greenpeace, which I thought was awesome. <laughs> you know, who doesn't think that's awesome going, you know, they have ships and they have all these toys and they have all this, th these means, but also they are independent and they're able to speak to issues simply with the truth. They're not dependent on funding from anybody else. And so I just, that spoke to me. I thought, well, this is where I could really be myself. Uh, with all the privilege that comes with uh, with such a huge organization like Greenpeace. So I guess it just, you know, one thing led to another. And after a year of joining the nonprofit sector, I actually jumped over to Greenpeace and then spent 11 years with, um, with Greenpeace. And that was fantastic. 
And now um, you've created Women for Ocean after your experience with Greenpeace. And I, I can relate to um, you know, the background in, in science, but wanting to, to, to be an advocate for the ocean, um, really understanding the science, but wanting to get involved in a way to change policy and make a difference. So I'd love to hear more about how Women for Ocean, where, where that came from and, and what that means for you. In all the all my travels and all my sort of experience working for the ocean, um, I you know one thing that struck me was the the number and um, and uh, you know sort of an amazing number of women, but also amazing sort of uh, uh, people that were working for the ocean around the world. Whether it was at the community level, you know, in, in fishing communities, um, the, the 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 women were often sort of very strong characters. They understood what was going on. Uh, with uh, with fish in 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 their seas and with the marine environments and how that was being degraded, um, but also at the at the international level, at the at the sort of political level, lobbying the the corridors of power at the United Nations and uh, but also here in the Netherlands. And I would just see that that whilst there were many amazing women doing incredible work, uh, we were not on. You know, the, we were not on the sort of at the, at, the, at the high level of making decisions, so we were not represented where we needed to be, and so it wasn't a lack of women; it was more the representation of women. And then I started to think about that, as well as my sort of background in biology. I I just wondered, you know, what we are doing that's so at odds with the natural world, and compared with other species. And it, you know, it just occurred to me, well, one, one thing we do, which other animals don't do, is we ignore half of our population. We literally ignore half our species and their contributions to, um, you know, to our, our civilization. And we've done that for centuries. Um, and of course, things are improving, but all our systems are basically designed by and for half of our demographic. And so I just wondered what it would be like if, if we were equally represented and equally shaping uh, the course of humanity uh, as women. And, um, and that, that I, I thought, well, maybe we need to try that. Maybe we just need to improve our representation. And it goes beyond women. It also goes to just our diversity as people on this planet. Um, you know, we, we very much have adopted a one, one system that we're trying to implement around the world, but that system is failing us. And that system, you know, was, was, uh, was developed and formed by, you know, just a handful of people. Um, so I, 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 I strongly believe we have to change that. And, and, and so that's why I set up Women for Oceans. I just thought, well, why don't we just begin with highlighting um, the women, the incredible women that are out there, um, as a way also to inspire more people into the ocean movement, and also inspire people from different backgrounds into the ocean uh, into the ocean movement. So um, it really is about the ocean. It always is for me, uh, but it's about trying to look through it, uh, look through a different lens, and 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 trying to achieve uh, you know outcomes, positive outcomes faster by embracing our diversity. Really, so that's that's why I set it up. You were moving from a multinational organization, Greenpeace, that's global in scope, as you said, it has its own fleet of ships and uh, operations, to uh, starting an independent NGO. And, and uh, how did you launch? And I mean, like, what women did you talk to? How did you just get it rolling? I set it up as a platform, uh, you know, just for women to connect. And, uh, and, and so it started off as a Facebook group and then a, a directory on, on the website. And it, I, I didn't intend for it to become uh, an NGO. 
but you know, very quickly, I, I did need to set it up as an NGO in order to have the infrastructure and be able to accept funding because it was, you know, there were people that were interested in supporting my mission. So I thought, okay, <laughs> this is going to happen. So it wasn't something that I, I, I had initially planned. It was more sort of, I wanted to facilitate, you know, more women being able to be represented in the ocean space. And it was missing. So I, 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 it, I can't pinpoint a single person that inspired me to do that. I think it's a, a, a an, you know, everybody inspires me. So, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's all the amazing work and uh, of people that I've seen in all my travels and in my work that, uh, that inspired me to set this up. So, and here we are. Uh, yeah, there's now 5,000 uh, women around the world that have, have joined the network. And um, actually, we, uh, I've just handed in a manuscript for the book, The Ocean and Us, which is a book that, uh, that talks about all the different ways that our lives interact with the ocean in an easy to digest way. Each chapter is written by a different expert. There's some 32 chapters, I believe. So it really covers all the ways, all, all aspects of the ocean and, and people from marine animal welfare to the blue economy to oil spills to plastic pollution and, and, and overfishing and so on and so forth. But also importantly, it also introduces the idea that we need better representation in the ocean space. And the idea that, that many people, they do continue to feel left out of being able to participate equally in matters concerning the ocean simply because of who they are, because of their identity. So this extends beyond just gender, uh, but really into sort of our intersectional sort of identities and, and how, how that affects our participation. So it, it covers a, a broad range of issues. Um, and again, that brings together the expertise of over 35 women from the Women for Oceans Network, all experts in their field, and that will be launched yeah, hopefully in the fall of this year. So yeah, look out for that. Congratulations. Awesome. That's that's wonderful. And I do, I believe Women for Ocean really, I mean, it does two things. It connects this group of women that are working towards protecting our oceans. And it also, you've been able to highlight and elevate some of our, from some of those stories, um, which then inspires others, inspires that next generation. Um, and that's, and that's really critical. And I, I mean, I, you definitely feel it. I mean, from when I went to grad, you know, graduate school to now, there's so many more young women that have emerged in this field. Well, unfortunately, we still have a long way to go. So I, I mean, David, you probably know this as do you, Tash, but the, the number of fish stocks in our world's oceans is declining. Uh, and, and, you know, there's something like a close to 90% of all fish stocks around the world are either fully fished uh, or overfished uh, you know, or depleted or gone. So it's, it's not looking very promising. And of course, there are initiatives that, you know, that are trying to turn things around. The EU have made certain steps in terms of eliminating IUU fishing, which is illegal, unreported, unregulated fishing, basically fish crimes happening at sea, which account for so much of the, um, of the destruction happening in our oceans. But really the problem is what happens out at sea just doesn't, doesn't engage people in the same way as it does on land. You know, if we were to just fell forests, clear fell forests, to catch a few parrots to put in our soup or to, put, to, to garnish with our fries, we would not accept that kind of destruction. But unfortunately it happens out at sea, out of sight and out of mind of, you know, everyday people, but also out of sight and out of mind of governments themselves and enforcement agencies. So there's still a big 
uh, long road ahead of us in terms of um, turning things around. And of course, it doesn't help that we have the climate crisis, which is, you know, fueling further destruction in the ocean as well as pollution and, and, and other threats. You almost think that, is there any environment on the planet that hasn't been exploited? Is there like a a large oceanic uh, environment that we don't know a lot about and that we haven't exploited yet. And that might be a segue into uh, deep sea mining. The deep sea, I mean, that, that's for sure a huge part of the planet that is unexplored um, and hopefully probably largely pristine, although we know that plastic pollution has infiltrated every part of our ocean, including the deep sea. So in, you know, how, in how far it's pristine compared with, uh, you know, 100, 200 years ago, that remains, remains questionable, but certainly there's a lot still to discover in the ocean. And that's what's so exciting about the ocean. It's like this, this endless kind of undiscovered frontier. And I think that excites young people and, and, and anybody really, because it really can fuel your imagination. What's down there? You know, there's such slow growing life in the deep ocean. Uh, you know, you have fish that are older than, than your grandmother. You know, you have corals that can live several thousand years old. There's the Greenland shark, lives up to 400 years old. So there's there's so much amazing life down there that we we are only just beginning to explore and to discover. But at the same time, with with any sort of discovery and any sort of move into a new frontier comes exploitation or the desire to exploit. And this, the same is true of the deep ocean. So in the deep ocean, in certain areas, there are mineral deposits, and that is now of interest to a new industry called deep sea mining. So there's three types of, of, of areas that, that could potentially be mined for, for minerals because they're rich in deposits. And these are the abyssal plains where these polymetallic nodules sit, which I'll get into because that's the most, at the moment, currently desired type of deposit that, that the miners are seeking. But there's also mineral deposits on things like hydrothermal vents and the cobalt crusts on seamounts. So there's a lot of interest to go into the deep ocean and to, to, to mine it for these minerals. I was just going to mention that our most recent podcast was with Don Walsh who is one of the first two humans to ever to go to the deepest point on our planet, seven miles down in the Marianas Trench back in 1960. And he was just saying he's kind of appalled at the idea that people return to the deep ocean to start mining without any of the environmental protections or scientific knowledge that we would have before we'd ever start any uh, kind of industrial activity on the land. So, um, the first pioneer of the deep ocean, the really deep ocean is just kind of shocked that we're taking this approach. And, and maybe you can just speak to Don's concerns. Are we really not doing environmental studies before we talk about going and, you know, mining the, the last unexploited uh, habitat on Earth? Well, I hope we do. I mean, look, there's still time to stop this. This is this is the thing about deep sea mining. So the idea is that uh, these companies want to mine in the international in international waters, so those areas that don't belong to any one country. So nobody's in charge sort of legally for these areas. There is a body called the International Seabed Authority, which is which has the sort of mandate to and protect the marine environment in the deep ocean, but also to manage uh, deep sea mining, which is a you know a, a contradiction in terms because the <laughs> you can't manage the deep you know can't protect the deep sea if you're going to be mining it. So it is a serious concern because. You know, unlike on land, we're not going to go down. We're talking about four to six kilometers. I don't, I don't know what that is in miles, but, but a few, a couple of kilometers down, that's where they want to go mine the deep sea. 
uh, mine these minerals, these polymetallic nodules, which take millions of years to form, by the way. So it's not like, you know, you remove them and then you, you reseed, you know, you replant some trees like you might on, on, on land. You, you know, on land, you can regenerate an area if you do it properly. You can bring back life relatively quickly. But in the deep ocean, where everything is slow growing, what I was saying earlier, it's slow growing, you're removing in a very destructive way, you're, you're removing these nodules that have taken millions of years to get there. You're causing huge sediment plumes in the process. You have to, again, imagine you're so many, you know, so deep in the ocean where everything moves slowly as well. So it's kind of these dust storms will, will arise from the mining activities, which will then be carried by currents over hundreds of, or tens of hundreds or hundreds of kilometers from the mining areas themselves. And all of this, we scientists know and understand, but it hasn't happened yet. We cannot quantify exactly what the effect will be other than that we know it's going to be, it's going to cause irreversible damage. Coming back to sort of the environmental, you know, studies that you're talking about, environmental impact assessments. I mean, who is going to go down there and audit what the miners are doing? Right. I mean, on land, you can send a team and say, OK, well, let's see how they're actually are they playing by the rules on this in this quarry or in this mine in the ocean? That's not possible. We simply don't have that technology. The governments don't have the, that kind of money to go and audit in the deep ocean. Only the miners have the money, you know, or at least not yet. But they're trying to sort of collect that money to develop the technology to go down there and mine. But there's no infrastructure to do any auditing. So this is serious. This is very concerning. And because it doesn't belong to any one country, there isn't a single country that is going to, you know, show up in the same way they would if it was happening on their own soil. Me, myself and many others are saying we shouldn't even go into the international waters. There is no legal regime, adequate legal regime that is that is truly going to protect what happens there because it doesn't belong to anybody. And it, that's a flaw, in my opinion, in, in the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, where we have basically left almost half our planet without any comprehensive legislation. It's a, a wild west. So, you know, until and unless we have comprehensive legislation and we have a thorough scientific understanding of everything that will happen right now, we know it's going to be destructive. But what we don't know is how it's going to impact the very systems in the ocean that sustain life in the ocean and therefore life on the planet. So you can imagine that by causing these sediment plumes and, you know, and, and disturbing the carbon that's stored and locked away in the, the seabed, the ocean, by the way, is our largest carbon sink on this planet. So if we're gonna disturb all that carbon and that's gonna come back into the water column, how is that going to affect the chemistry of the ocean? How is that going to, you know, how long will it take for that carbon to to be re-released back into the atmosphere? These are all questions we simply don't have answers to. And we need a lot more studies before we can even think about going down there to destroy the deep ocean. I'm with uh, Mr. Walsh there all the way. We, we, <laughs> we need to be concerned. What you're hearing now is that uh, these are the minerals we need to uh, convert to uh, transition off fossil fuels into the new technologies of the green economy. So I, I guess instead of greenwashing, you'd have to call that blue washing. Right. No, absolutely. And of course, they'll, uh, you know, they'll look for, for any excuse. And right now we are sitting in, you know, with multiple crises. We've got the climate crisis. We've got the biodiversity crisis. We've got this pandemic ongoing and the war in Ukraine. And so now is like the, the, the perfect moment for these miners 
to sort of fast track rules and regulations that would allow them to mine within, you know, as little as a year, hopefully more than that. But, you know, time is running out. And of course, because of the climate crisis, it's the, the message couldn't be better to say, yeah, but we need these minerals to, to fuel the transition economy, you know, to wean us off fossil fuels, to put into our electric cars and our gadgets. But the industry themselves have acknowledged that there's enough metal on land to do that. So it's flawed. It's basically just t- jumping on the bandwagon of, of, of the climate crisis and then just using the, that, that message to their advantage. I mean, sure, those minerals that are in the deep ocean, you know, they're manganese, cobalt, nickel. Uh, You could argue that, well, but they're being used in electric vehicle technology today. But the thing is, if we look at electric vehicle technology today, this is not our future. Think about an electric car. It takes half an hour to charge, right? It's not efficient. We can't take 1.7 or what is it? 1.7 billion cars off the road and replace them with today's technology of electric vehicles. And that's why companies... Big car companies, uh, you know, like Tesla, like BYD, which is the world's second largest uh, producer of electric vehicles, uh, like Volkswagen, Renault, um, Volvo, all these major companies that are producing are now sort of leading on also electric vehicle technology. They are saying no to deep sea mining. Now, they're saying this out of concern for the environment, I'm sure. But they're also saying this because they have the foresight to know that they won't be needing those metals in their batteries going forward because it's simply too expensive and we need to be you know transitioning on a huge scale not just a hybrid prius here or there or tesla for 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 those that can afford it you know this is this is a massive you know transition in our mobility globally and so for me it reinforces the idea we don't need to be going into the deep sea there are cheaper and more efficient ways of doing it. And car companies are demonstrating that. And that's why these companies, but also tech companies like Google, Samsung, Philips, companies are coming out and saying, no, we also don't need those metals for our gadgets. So I would argue back to the mining industry, you're just being opportunistic uh, and using the climate crisis as an excuse to mine the deep ocean. You're saying the mining industry is not historically an environmental leader? (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I guess not, no. But this is amazing. I mean, what I wasn't surprised to hear that 600 scientists and leading ocean advocates call for a moratorium on deep ocean mining. What is surprising is that you have the large and growing corporate sector, as you say, from Google to BMW to Panasonic, to all these companies that saying, no, they don't want deep ocean minerals there. They're willing to take a look. And it's, it's almost strange that the private sector is being more progressive than some of these these coastal governments, we don't have a strong position out of a lot of governments to say no. And in fact, they're targeting places, you know, the less developed parts of the world, like Cook Islands, to start promoting this drilling, this mining. It's uh, basically a new form of colonialism or colonialism continued, where, you know, the the areas that will be most impacted are going to be uh, small island states in the Pacific Ocean. Because where they want to mine in the first sort of round is in an area called the clarion Clipperton zone, which sits between Mexico and, and Hawaii. And we already know from studies um, that have been done by fisheries scientists that deep sea mining will impact tuna catches in the Pacific Ocean. So that's going to have knock-on effects, obviously, for the industry, which is a multi-billion dollar industry. But... I'm more concerned about the effects that it's going to have on local communities and their fish stocks. They are already suffering, as we just discussed, 
from industrial overfishing and the victims of industrial overfishing. And now we're going to add insult to injury and start mining in their backyard. Um, no. So, I mean, they, they're, there's some big concerns there around equality as well and, and, and who's going to benefit from these yeah. minerals. This is our chance to be precautionary for once before this industry be even begins. We have a chance to do the studies, understand what's happening in these deep sea, deep sea ecosystems. We've only documented 5% of the deep sea. We don't even know what's down there. How can we go and extract these resources until we really understand what's there? So this, this is an opportunity. Yeah. And I think you, um, you explained it so well in the film in too deep in terms of the impact and also in terms of like you were saying, the industry really actually being a leader in this case, the, the governments are, 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 are behind the industry. Can you talk a little bit about the film and, and how that came about and, and is that making an impact on, on, on this moratorium? So for, first of all, the fact that deep sea mining doesn't happen yet gives me hope, right? Because it, unlike the climate crisis and other crises which we can see, and you know we feel helpless to do anything about because how do we wean off of fossil fuels? We want to heat our homes. We want to do this. We want to do that. I mean, it's not within our power to get off of, of fossil fuels immediately. But with this industry, it hasn't started yet. There are no jobs at stake. There's no infrastructure in place. So we can nip this industry, so to speak, in the bud, right? But it needs momentum. It needs everybody to get engaged. When I started looking at this issue, I thought, well, so yeah, there's the hope story. It doesn't, it hasn't started yet. But also people haven't heard of it. They don't know what this is and, and what's about to happen. And I can talk about it as much as I like, and I try to everywhere that I can. But what I felt was missing was just a concise kind of overview of what deep sea mining is and what it could could look like and the devastation that it could have. And so that's how the film Into Deep, The True Cost of Deep Sea Mining was born. I commissioned, well, as you know, a great filmmaker to, to, to put the film together. We had interviews with experts, scientists, but also a lady from, uh, from BMW, the sort of the, the lead person on, on this issue from BMW. You know, she spoke to why the industry is rejecting minerals from the deep ocean in, for their supply chains. And I thought that would be very powerful because then it sort of signals, hey, this is not just some, you know, group of environmentalists, again, rejecting something just for the sake of it or for whatever reason, because, you know, which is what we often get as environmentalists. But this really, you know, shows that, no, this is this is a kind of unified, unified voice across many sectors rejecting this industry and saying, hey, we can stop this before it starts. Let's do that. Let's stop it before it starts. And then we would, I mean, personally, I think if we can do that, we would empower people everywhere to know that actually we have the power to stop environmental destruction. You know, so if we can make, if we could win this, then we can take that, that momentum, that energy to other environmental fights. You know, so because I think people are at the moment feeling helpless. What can we do? Forest fires here, floods there, war here, pandemic there. What can we do? It's almost like the world's imploding. But here's something we can actually do. We can stop this next destruction, which doesn't belong in our future, right? It's something from the past. It's a, it's a model of extraction that we decided to ditch as a global community through our sustainable development goals, through our push towards a, sustain, uh, towards a circular economy. We decided we weren't going to do that linear model of, of take, make, break, waste, no, we're, we're, we're looking for something different and, and it's within our reach. 
There's so many great initiatives out there that are trying to recover metals from waste streams, for example, bio-leaching, uh, also reducing our consumption and all these innovations in energy and transport. I'm hopeful that you know, if we could win this campaign, we, we will be on a new energetic, energetic path um, for a whole suite of different issues. So yeah, and that's how the film came to be, to answer your question. And um, I do encourage everyone to watch that because it gives you just in 18 minutes, it gives you a very good overview of what's at stake, why the deep ocean matters and, and who's all saying no uh, to deep sea mining. It's an, it's an excellent film. And I love how this, this is such a great story of actually giving us hope that we can make, we can change something. We can change this path. It doesn't have to be this way. And this is our chance to be precautionary for once in our, on our planet. That's right. Farah, thank you so much for your, your passion, your commitment, your work, and uh, for joining us on Rising Tide Ocean podcast today. Thank you very much, David. And uh, yeah, again, I encourage you to watch the film, but also to check out womenforoceans.org, find out more about our book, The Ocean and Us, and, uh, and everything else there is about the ocean. So thank you. Thank you, Farah. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support is provided by Studio Cape May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbark. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Tear, tear, tear. Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.